I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? If you know how you are wired, you're better able to act authentically. You know, we talk a lot about being authentic and it's like, what does that even mean? In my opinion, being authentic is going with your natural strengths. With Shonda Laney. Vanessa Van Edwards is a national best-selling author and founder of Science of People. Vanessa is renowned for teaching science-backed people skills to audiences around the world. On this episode, Vanessa shares tangible skills to improve interpersonal communication and leadership, including her insights on how people work. Get ready for Vanessa to go over her methods for turning soft skills into actionable, masterable frameworks that can be applied in daily life. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching, so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. Vanessa, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I am so excited for this conversation and I want to get started with what do you do each day to improve? So if we think about an athlete, they're going to do certain drills and routines every day. Are there any things like that for you that you just love to do every single day to improve? Yeah, I um, I try really hard. I would say, you know, five out of seven days, every single day is hard. But five out of seven days, I try one to take really, really long walks. Um, I found that you know, not only for my body and my physical health, but when I'm trying to figure out a problem or I've had a bad email or I'm in a funk, the best way for me to not ignore it, because I think that the, the hardest challenge is when we have a moment of growth, but we're too busy to really soak it in. Um, that's when I try to go on a really long walk and like uh, soak it in, explore it, figure it out. I, I, I have walked out most of my books and podcasts and blogs. <laughs> No, I'm very much the same. Anytime I'm trying to tackle a big problem, that's the exact same thing I do. Anything else over the years like that, that don't even have to be work-related, but you just love to do, you think have some really good benefits for you? Oh, yeah, there's so many. So, yeah, long walks is one. Um, I really, really try to start my day reading psychology feeds. 
It's a very weird, very specific thing, but I found, so I've tried every morning routine that I possibly, every recommendation I've tried it. And the one that seems to give me the most motivation I'm most excited for is not checking email, is not even reading like a fiction or nonfiction book. It's specifically, I found, I like to browse, you know, first thing in the morning, your brain is just kind of booting up. So if I'm, if I dive into deep reading, it's too much. If I dive into email, I'm lost in email for three hours. And if I start with like a really big project, I kind of dread it. So this happy medium is like, okay, I want to browse, but I don't want it to be news because news is a big Pandora's box. You never know what I end up too, too often. I end up on Buzzfeed at the end of that. So uh, what I decided was, okay, maybe psychology feeds are the best way to do it. So I have about 10 different psychology, sociology, behavioral economics websites that um, every morning I kind of rotate through them and just read the latest academic research news. And I find it's calming, it's informative, but it's not too much brain power. And so I do that. I try to do that every morning for about 20 minutes. Is there anything you've come across recently uh, on one of those feeds that might not be in your main domain of expertise, but you found really interesting? Oh, yes. Um, mice poop. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think yeah. we'd be discussing mice poop today. This is awesome. We're three minutes in and we're talking about mice poop. It's a good day. Yeah. So I, so one of my like side hobbies, passions is the microbiome. I love, I mean, I love psychology research, but I love gut research. And this was, this study like blew my mind and it basically looked at the microbiome of mice. And there was this hypothesis, which I think is nuts. I'm going to tell you this hypothesis. You're going to be like, um, what? So their hypothesis is that, your personality comes from your gut, that we're not extroverted or introverted out of context or out of choice, that actually our gut biome affects how introverted or extroverted we are. That's insane. The second thing gets even weirder. The way they decided to test this was with extroverted and introverted mice. And yes, there is a difference. So um, if you look at mice uh, in like a maze or a cage, extroverted mice as predicted are the life of the party. They're wrestling with other mice. They're, you know, uh, well, going up to other mice. They're sharing food bowls with other mice. They're very into other mice. Whereas introverted mice, as predicted, are reading a, a stoic book in the corner. No, I'm just joking. They're um, hanging out by themselves. They grab food and bring it over to the corner of the cage. Uh, they don't like to go through the maze with anyone else. So they wondered, okay, what's the difference between these mice? We think it's their microbiome. So they took mice poop mice fecal matter, and they did a fecal transplant. So they took extroverted mice poop and they put it inside introverted mice gut and introverted mice put poop and they put it in extroverted mice guts. And you will not believe that they switched personalities. So when they put a fecal transplant of extroverted poop into an introverted mouse, that mouse became more extroverted and vice versa. So they ha have they tried to replicate this at all with a fecal transplantation in humans? <laughs> no, no, we are way, are you kidding? We are so far away. Like I, I am an, a recovering awkward person. I have social anxiety. I get hives in social situations. I would be the first person in line to be more extroverted, but it would take a lot for me to take my extroverted friends poop and swallow it in a pill. That would take a lot. Like I would have to really be sure that was going to work.
I, I have to check this study out. I might need you to shoot this over to me so we can include it in the sh- show notes. But you mentioned a recovering awkward person. I loved the start of your book, Captivate, because it was just hilarious uh, with the start there. And I'm also, I've been obsessed with human behavior for a while. I don't think from such an early age as you, but I would love understanding where and, and how even at such an early age you became obsessed with human behavior. Yeah. Well, um, you said that I've been doing it for a long time. I have always been like the uncool kid, you know, like I was, I, every recess was torture. I begged my teachers to stay inside at recess and clean the chalkboards. And I went to school when there were still chalkboards. Um, and so as an awkward person, I always observed the cool kids. You know, I wondered what, what makes them different? How is it that they can walk into the cafeteria or walk into a class and everyone wants to know them and they just are so effortless at conversation. How do they do that? And for a long time, I truly believed that there was this unwritten set of rules that everyone had gotten except me. That somehow I had just missed that day in class or I had just like missed that camp. Um, And it wasn't until college that I realized or I was introduced to the idea from a psychology professor that actually people skills can be learned. I was of the belief that you are either born with it or you're not. You're born a leader or you're not. You're born charismatic or you're not. And this professor who I deeply admire and I so looked up to convinced me. He said, no, 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 no. Leaders are born. Charismatic people are born but they also can be made and you can learn it at any time in your life. You have not missed that boat. And so he taught me a very different way about thinking about people, which was study for people like you study for science. In other words, look for the patterns, make flashcards, follow frameworks, make formulas for things that work. And that was the first time where someone introduced a very black and white methodology to what I considered extremely gray things. Conversation to me felt like, um, you know, a chicken with its head cut off. It was like, I never know what direction it was going to go in. It was very scary. It was super intimidating. He said, no, no, no. If you listen to the cool kids talk, and that's all I did. I would sit in the cafeteria with no one and listen to cool kids talk. He's like, you will hear there are patterns of conversations. There's patterns that go well and patterns that don't. And so slowly I began to literally do that. I mean, I made flashcards for icebreakers. I began to observe body language and take notes. I started to research some of the psychology and sociology textbooks, but for everyday use. And little did I know that that would turn into a career. I was on a totally different career track, but it turns out I'm not the only recovering awkward person in the world. No, I absolutely love this. And it's almost like one of those epiphany type moments when you understand that this is almost like a math problem and something you could study for. And we're going to get into that in, into your career, but I would love to know today, when you're learning a new topic, you're researching, what does that look like for you? Anything specific you do that things that you think works really well? Yeah, I really like, um, I like storyboarding. So basically what I do is I have, uh, I also love office supplies. I mean, any excuse to use highlighters and colored pencils and flashcards. I think I'm still in third grade in that way. So I will basically take out uh, colored flashcards and um, color code notes. So for example, all of my academic peer reviewed research is usually on green. Um, my stories, personal stories, uh, personal case studies, funny examples are usually blue. Um, funny jokes or um, funny anecdotes, silly things, silly examples are on pink. <laughs> um, and so I, as I'm researching or reading, and that can be anything. I mean, I I think I was watching the Gilmore Girls. I know that's your favorite show too. 
And um, there was a great example of, uh, not to get, just to give you an idea. So one of the girls was running for president and uh, she didn't win. And they said, oh, you know, it's because you're too competent. You're not warm. Everyone thinks you're really smart, but no one likes you. And they literally said that to her. And I thought, gosh, that's a great example of um, when you can be the smartest person in the world, but that doesn't mean people are going to vote for you. You have to have both smarts and friendliness. So I put that on a uh, red card as like a funny example. I took a clip of that show. I, I screen grabbed it and I taught that in my last office hours. And it was a great example, different than me just talking at people about how you see this happen and everything from scripted shows to reality shows to real life. I love it. I always love hearing about pe people's learning processes. And you're the lead investigator now at Human Behavior Lab, scienceofpeople.com, and you have one of the more informative websites. So I want to thank you first and foremost for that because you can just learn so much there. But how does a Human Behavior Lab even get started? Yeah. Um, so actually, I came at it from a journalistic approach. So you know, back when I was um, just out of college, had some first jobs, was very awkward still, really. At this point, I had some formulas, I had some flashcards. And so I was using all my materials and my strategies personally, just trying to get through, trying to get my first jobs, trying to negotiate for the first time. So I was in that, I was using it personally, but I was also writing. So I, I've always loved to write. So I was um, pitching articles to different outlets online. And I quickly learned that there was this really, there was this thirst in the market for science coverage, but that science coverage alone wouldn't probably get you very much for the article, maybe 50 bucks per an article. But if you added some of your own research, you could get up to $250 per article because it made it a little bit different. And so this is when I was like, well, I could totally find research that I can somehow test. And I started off with really silly things. So like, I think that there was a study, um, it's, I think it's called the Kui ku ku effect, like cute animals or dogs make you more focused. And this real academic research study looked at that if you look at pictures of kittens or puppies before memorizing something, you actually do better at remembering things. <laughs> Um, and I was like, great. I was like, this is, you know, that could maybe be a 500 word article, maybe. But if I add my own research to it, that I could get up to a thousand or maybe even 2000 words. And so I covered the study and then I actually did the Kawhi effect for myself. I started looking at pictures and kittens before um, studying, trying to memorize something. And then I tested myself. It was a funny article, light, but it added some dimension to the science. And so that's that was sort of the germ that ended up being science of people, that people didn't just want me to cover the latest psychological research paper. They wanted me to cover it and try it myself, see if I could actually use it in real life, and then give funny, interesting, compelling examples. Is that still what drives you guys at scienceofpeople.com? You have this curiosity, you come across something, then, then you go and use it on yourself, and then now that you have tens and thousands and, and even millions of people interacting with you guys, you get to experiment and understand it from a much bigger perspective? Yeah, so that's that's exactly it. So what it's become now, which is almost the same as when I first started, is you know we have millions of people who visit the website every month, and so we listen. We look very closely at our our keywords. So we look and see, okay, you know, um, um, you know, million one point seven million people visited last month. Um, let's look at our top keywords. Okay, uh, great, ambivert, body language, female body language, conversation starters. Yep, we have articles and all that. Oh, wait. Why, why should someone like me? Hmm. 
there's an interesting keyword. We don't really have an article about why someone should feel likable. Maybe we could add on an article about likability from an internal perspective, not an external perspective. And that's when we'll go, okay, let's go to the research and see if we can find any research. Great. Let's test it. Let's see if we can do a little case study. Let's see if we can have a story. And so we actually look at our keyword traffic to see what we're not serving our audience. And then we do the work of doing the academic research and then trying to test it and then putting it into a huge master guide. You'll notice that a lot of our articles are uh, five to 10,000 words. Can you walk me through that academic research process phase? I'm sure a lot of people are unfamiliar with that and me being one of them. I'd love to know what that's like in the lab for you guys. Um, yeah, so we uh, have a team of writers, which is wonderful. It didn't start, it wasn't always that way. <laughs> Usually in the first many years, let's see, science people have been around now for 12 years. So in the first six, five or six, it was just me doing it. But first we do big, big keyword research. So we look at the keyword and then we explore every aspect of that keyword that we could possibly think of. So we use Ahrefs and as well as Google Suggest. So let's say, let's take the term likability. So we have an article on um, how to be likable. We wanted to add maybe an internal focus on how to feel likable. So uh, we use Ahrefs and find every variation of this idea, everything from um, feeling inauthentic, likable, being authentic, uh, how to be likable, likable body language, likable verbs, uh, being likable in conversation. Um, how do I get my in-laws to like me? How do I get my boss to like me? How do I get my colleagues to like me? And we come up with, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30 keywords. Um, big ones as well as small ones. And that's the outline of our article typically. So like, let's say um, how to get my boss to like me is 300 searches a month, but how to be likable is 30,000. Great. The topic of the article is how to be likable, but we want to see, is there any research on does how to get your boss to like you? That's going to be a subsection. And then we begin to use all the databases we can find. So typically we spend a lot of time in Google Scholar, EBSCOhost, JSTOR, um, ResearchGate, and begin to use all those search terms in the different databases, look for the studies, read the studies, catalog the studies, <laughs> and look for patterns. Um, and so the article, that, and then we have a Google document that's maybe 30 or 40 pages worth of literature review and organized by subheading and topic. Um, and then we go to Google for examples and case studies. So in fact, there is a study about bosses and how to get your boss to like you. And it has to do with matching personality traits and the, the contagion of moods of bosses. There's a great study that shows that if a boss shows up in a bad mood, it literally spreads the office like an like a illness. This is maybe a bad time to be talking about spreading illness, but it's literally that contagious that it just goes from person to person to person, up and down, up and down the organization. And so how do you, what's, why is that important? You have to know how to stop contagion. So then, okay, there's no research on that, right? There's no research on what to do with that topic, which I think is where our secret sauce comes in. Okay, that's an interesting study, but how in the world are you gonna stop your boss's bad mood from spreading? Like, how do you even begin to do that? And so that's when we start thinking about, okay, what are some actual frameworks, tips, formulas that we could use that someone could very practically do the moment they step foot in the office or the moment they hop on a video call? And that's when my team and I begin to brainstorm tips. We begin to research um, everything from other, other experts' TED Talks. We love quoting other experts if we don't have the idea. We look at case studies. We read Reddit forums and get case studies from there. Um, 
And that's how we begin to flesh out the article. That was a very long answer. But yeah. No, this is fantastic. I love this because there's always so much nuance. And w when you're so deeply ingrained in something, the outsiders don't get to, to see behind the curtain per se. And we see this finished product that you guys put out. So it's so cool to hear about what goes behind that. And you were just talking a lot about being likable. And there's so much I want to uncover about that. But before we dive into captivating others, how do we understand more just about ourselves and what type of person we are? I know you've mentioned a few things about personality. Anything an individual can be doing right off the bat to understand themselves better? Yeah, I think that there are, I'll say two main things that it's very helpful to start with. Um, the first one is your big five personality traits. And I, I love a personality test, you know, Enneagram, DISC, Myers-Briggs, those are all fun, but they're actually not backed up in research. So they have not been able to replicate those results consistently. A lot of the time people change in the situation, they change with their moods. <laughs> you know, if you take the Myers-Briggs test in a bad mood, you get a totally different answer if you take it in a good mood. Um, the only personality science that's actually been peer reviewed, it's used around the world with different cultures and genders, doesn't change with your mood, is the big five. So the big five is your openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism. I talk about this a lot in Captivate. Um, I think it really is fundamental to understanding yourself. If you know how you are wired, you're better able to act authentically. You know, we talk a lot about being authentic and it's like, what does that even mean? In my opinion, being authentic is going with your natural strengths. It's saying, okay, I might be a little bit less conscientious than the average person. Conscientiousness is how you approach details. So high conscientious folks, that's me, we love details, right? Like you can hear, I love flashcards and categorizing. We send, I send five paragraph long emails on the regular. If you are low conscientious, details box you in, De details drain you, details like absolutely feel, make you feel like you're, you're, you're caged into something. You're much more a big idea person. You're much more like, I get the general gist, give me the big idea and then I can run with it. So if you know that about yourself, that also affects, for example, how you save, how you get tasks done. If you're low conscientious, it's much harder for you to sign yourself up for jobs, hobbies that require lots of attention to detail. You'd be better off picking things that go with your natural strengths. Be the big idea person. Let someone else do the details. Use task management softwares. Use reminder softwares. Make sure that you have a team member or an assistant or a partner who is really high conscientious. You don't have to be. So it's instead of trying to learn something or force yourself to be something you're not, it's actually accepting who you are and then leveraging it. No, I absolutely love that because so many people don't take that approach. I am wondering, though, you were talking about the, the mice poop earlier. How much does personality change over time? Yes. So there are great, really interesting personality trends, and they do this using the big five. So they actually um, test people's big five over the course of a lifetime. Now, there's some really the, the good news is that a lot of our traits do remain the same throughout our life, meaning they do think that a lot of our traits are genetic. And this does tie into the mice poop study because they think that somehow your genetics change your gut flora or your gut microbiome. And that's actually where our personality is coming from. So for example, not to get too nitty gritty, but again, I'm high conscientious is there's a dream, a gene called the serotonin transport gene. Everyone has a different version of this gene. If you have a long allele of that gene, you produce less serotonin and you produce it more slowly. Serotonin is 95% of it's in your gut. Serotonin is what makes you feel calm and a sense of belonging. So if you follow me here, okay, let's say that genetically, epigenetically, maybe you were in your, in, in the womb and that 
gene did not get turned on. So you had the long form of the serotonin transport gene. And so when you're born, you have less serotonin in your gut. So as you grow up, you go to preschool, you meet kids for the first time, you feel less belonging and less calm in social situations. And that begins to feed on itself because you don't feel as calm. So that makes you feel more anxious, which makes you be like, I'm an introvert. I don't like people. And so it's, it comes from a genetic place. They even found that when they, the observed personality traits of a three-year-old are the same as the reported personality traits of that same three-year-old at 26 years old. That's a, a ridiculously long study. They, they followed three-year-olds for 23 years. And they found that their, your, your observed personality traits are correlated to your reported personality traits at 26. However, there are trends over time and, and uh, major life events change this. So I believe that the one, one of the big ones is that women get more neurotic over time, <laughs> which shouldn't surprise anyone listening. Probably. <laughs> um, I believe that, um, oh gosh, I'm, I haven't looked at the trends recently. I think the other one is that men get less open over time meaning they don't need adventure as much as they did in their twenties, which makes sense. And also that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that men would be more open when they're trying to find their mate and build their business and scavenge and hunt. And then when they get older, they're like, Oh, the young guys can do that. So there's all kinds of really interesting cycles there, but the most important thing is to know at least where you are right now. Yeah, absolutely. And what I love so much about all of your work and especially this conversation is just how many eye-opening moments there are and how much interesting things you bring to light. And a second ago, you were talking about remaining calm and, and the serotonin. One of those moments that aren't so calm can be those first impressions. When you're first meeting someone, I would love to know, are there any tips and, and ways we can handle that scenario a little bit better so we can remain calm during a potential awkward scenario? Yeah. So I think that the first one is actually mental, which is, is really important. So most people, especially my fellow awkward people, my fellow introverts, and I'm actually not an introvert. I'm an ambivert. I'm somewhere in between. Um, so my fellow um, ambiverts and introverts, fellow awkward people, we like to believe, we tell ourselves that our first impression happens the moment we start talking. So we get into a party or we get into a networking event and we're, we put our coat down, we grab our name tag, we get our drink, we go to the bathroom and then we're like, okay, I'm ready for my first impression. And maybe we chat up someone who's standing next to us or if we're really brave, we approach a group. That is unfortunately not the case. Our first impression happens the moment someone first sees us, including on a video call. There's another huge thing I see with my students. So we have, I think, over 576,000 students right now going through our courses. And so every month I hold live office hours for them and everyone's doing a lot more video calls these days, a lot more remote work. And the big question is, okay, I'm making a first impression. Is it different? And the answer is not really. The moment you turn on a video, unfortunately, here's how they usually go. Can you see me? Can you hear me? Hello? Hello? Oh, hi. Oh, hello. Hi. Yep. Hi. Yep. So uh, how's it going? That's typically the first impression of the first few seconds of most of my video calls. I don't know about you. The problem is, so most of our first impressions are happening remotely or on video with confusion, not knowing where things are. We're fixing our hair. We're fixing our teeth. We're fixing our jewelry. We're adjusting the camera. We're adjusting the mic. 
And so um, what we really have to realize, it's those first few seconds that matter more than anything. And that's actually good news. That means that once you get past that, those first few seconds, that's really all you have to worry about. That sets you up for a better entire interaction. So for video calls specifically, um, and we can talk about in person too, but video calls seem to be the one that everyone's struggling with. One, have your setup ready to go. So if that's a home office, great. If that's a, a corner of a bedroom, great. But you know it looks good, it sounds good. I do highly recommend either earbuds or a microphone, but you know that you're gonna be sounding good and looking good because you've done it a million times before. You tech checked once and you're set. I have a setup that I use for all my video calls and I know it's gonna look good and sound good. One that takes away a ton of confusion. Second, the moment I hit open Zoom or get on Teams or start FaceTime, I am ready. I am ready for my first impression because I know that it's going to happen in those first few seconds. And the moment the video pops on, I do three things. One is I immediately make eye contact with the camera, not myself. This is so hard. I know. What's the first thing you want to do when you open video is you want to look at yourself, right? You want to see how do I look? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But if you've done your tech setup, you know you look okay. So look at the dot. And that's a very weird thing. But once you retrain yourself, it's it's like muscle memory. So look at the dot first, not yourself. Second, I always do a wave. So I always have a hand. Hey, nice to see ya. So I literally have my hand up. That's a really important psychological um, uh, signal of safety. So when we, when we can see someone's hands subconsciously from our caveman days, we're like, ah, they're not carrying a weapon. Great. We can see their intention. And so that's the very first thing I do is I make eye contact with the dot and then I give a nice wave so you can see the palm of my hand. And then I typically say a very simple nicety. Hey there. Good morning. How are you? Doesn't have to be anything crazy, right? You don't have to like, you know, pop on with anything uh, major. Those three things, you've just nailed your first impression. I absolutely love it. So many great takeaways here. It's so funny, though. I, I'm obsessed with Shark Tank, much like yourself. Yes. And I know you guys did some research. These are very similar to actual real life first impressions as well, correct? They are not just similar, my friend. They are the same. <laughs> they are the same. Here's the good news is like the, the virtual first impressions are the same as in person. They've even found that we can produce oxytocin, the chemical for connection through a webcam. So we're talking about the same things. So yes, so we did a huge Shark Tank experiment. My, my amazing research partner, Jose Pina, analyzed 400 pitches on Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> um, amazing, incredible work over many, many months. And he coded them for different cues. So everything from uh, their walk to their waves, to their smiles, to their nods, to how they decided to pitch. Um, did they have math problems, all those things. And that's exactly what he found is um, that the most successful entrepreneurs typically entered the tank, took their spot on the carpet, immediately made eye contact with the sharks, had a nice wave palm open, and then launched into their pitch. And that was like a gateway to, ah, okay, this is gonna be good. No, ever since I, I heard that research that you guys did, all I could do every time watching were, were those first impressions and seeing how different contestants handled that. One thing I wanna get back to with the remote work though, so I just missed those interactions with my team members, so now we're, we're distributed, haven't seen them in months. How can I just have that sense of belonging and connectedness with them? Uh, I feel like even just those, those personal touches, little things like that seem to be missing still. Is there anything we can be doing? Yeah. So I've been researching this a lot, um, you know, the, from a business perspective, 
Um, we get a portion of our income, obviously, from courses. We have a lot of online courses, but then also a big portion of our income is my speaking. And so the moment that I couldn't travel anymore, we lost a lot of our, all of our speaking engagements. And so I very quickly thought, okay, what's the thing that people need right now is virtual trainings that actually inspire belonging right? Like if I'm going to replace a training or do a training online, it actually not only has to be educational virtually, but it has to make people feel a little bit like we're actually in person together at the same time. And so I began to do a lot of research on what works virtually, what makes us feel that serotonin and oxytocin. And the very easiest one is pretty simple, which I love, which is the science behind shared rituals. So shared rituals are incredibly powerful for producing both serotonin and oxytocin, serotonin, the sense of belonging and calm, oxytocin, the sense of trust and connection. And a shared ritual is anything that you're doing with two or more people at the same time doing the same thing. So this is pretty much any synchronized icebreaker, synchronized warm-up, watching something together, learning something together. And so at a very simple very easy one is every one of my team meetings. We have a team meeting every Tuesday morning. We start every team meeting the same way, which is tell me something good. And we know that the moment everyone logs in, they should be thinking about tell me something good. This does two really important things. One is it creates predictability and routine that produces serotonin. We love predictability and routine. Two, it changes our brain patterns. What is it, What are we usually doing before a team meeting? Checking our email, going, oh, a team meeting, <laughs> thinking how long is this going to take? When you know that you're about to pop in, you're going to start off with tell me something good. Your brain's like, okay, okay, what's my good thing? What's my good thing? What's my good thing? What's my good thing? What a beautiful way to think before you're about to get on with your team. And it changes you to think more optimistically. It also gets you more excited to, to share something exciting or to hear something exciting. And inevitably what happens is everyone syncs up, right? Everyone's in that same brain space at the same time. And then we all pop on and I say, oh, my something good is uh, I'm taking a, a new a painting class and I'm learning how to do acrylics and here's my tree that I painted. Ooh. And then Rob goes and Rob says, oh, you know, okay, my something good is I just took an online sushi class and it was a total fail and I can't show you pictures because I ate all the sushi. Ah. It just syncs up what everyone is doing. And so the power of shared ritual, especially openers and icebreakers are so important for that chemical connection. Oh, Vanessa, you're such a rock star. I cannot wait to implement this uh, with my team. One thing I'm concerned with, though, is just the unpredictable nature of all of this. And do you think there's going to be some serious long-term effects if we can't get back to in-person as much? Yeah, I do. I do. And I don't... I don't think that they're all bad necessarily, but I think, um, one, it's going to change. How do I put this? Um, I think that people are going to be more discriminatory against who is worth getting germs for. In other words, we are not going to just give out our handshakes willy-nilly anymore. And this is going to be a very long, I think almost a whole generation where when we're, even when conferences come back, we're going to think to ourselves, maybe I'm just going to wave who deserves my handshake. And it's going to be reserved for people who you feel truly deserve it. Your close friends, people you really trust, VIPs. I think that's going to be the same for how close we get to people. We're going to be reserving that more. We're going to be more uh, discriminatory with when we give that. So I think that physical intimacy, touch, physical closeness is going to be now guarded. It's going to be considered a gift. And that's a really subtle distinction, but I do think that it's going to matter in our interactions. 
I, I can only imagine how how that comes off to someone else because you, you talk so much about being open. Do you think that's going to really hurt the interactions with people when we're unwilling to, to shake their hand or even just seem more open with them? I don't know about hurt because I don't think it's a bad thing to be careful with your intimacy, right? Like, I don't think that, you know, walking around a networking event and shaking 400 hands actually <laughs> makes you 400 connections. Very good you know? point. <laughs> And so I don't actually think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I do think it's going to increase the cognitive load um, on our brains in interactions. So we're going to be working much, much harder in those networking events, and those conferences. But that might mean that conferences will just be smaller. That might mean that um, we um, take more breaks or alone time or solo time. And so I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. In fact, I think it could be a different way to interact and maybe a good way that you're really thinking carefully about the quality of your contacts and not just the quantity. Yeah, maybe a little bit more depth there instead of breadth. You were talking about the shared rituals, and I feel like I learned so much a minute ago. And I know you're an expert just in, in body language in general. So I'm wondering, how is body language, how important is it on camera? Is this something we actively need to be thinking about? Everything. I think it's actually everything. And the reason for that is, look, you can't even see me right now, but I'm going to change my body language and I'm actually going to broaden the word body language to nonverbal. So you can hear my voice tone as well. So I want you to just hear the difference. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Like those are the same words, but they are radically different. If I were to get on this podcast and be like, yep, happy to be here. You'd be like, WTF, like, what is she doing on here? She doesn't want to be here. And that's because we give so much weight to nonverbal. And by the way, you couldn't even see my nonverbal and you still didn't want to hear me. And that's because I sagged my shoulders. I made a frowny face. I used a lot of sighs. I didn't use any hand gestures. I didn't smile. And I made my voice sound really, really boring. However, when I was excited, I smiled, I used more hand gestures, I'm standing up straight, I'm using more breath, I'm using a much more uh, awe-infused vocal tone is what I call it. So just hearing those two things on a video, when you add the nonverbal, everyone is looking to your nonverbal for, does this person mean it? Do I want to listen to them? Do I believe them? It's something that's just needs to be on the top of our mind because in person, it's so easy to think about posture and things of that nature, but it was, it was two different people there talking. So I, I think that just really helps reiterate the importance of this. I know you've done so much research over so many years. What element of human behavior do you find just hardest to change in people? Hardest to change. Hmm. I actually, I will say, um, vocal power is really hard because so body language, you can see it. I can say, watch, I'm going to put my hands behind my back. Doesn't that make me seem less trustworthy? And now here, my hands are in front of me. Doesn't that seem better? It's very visible. It's very physical. We can say, yes, you're doing it. And no, you're not verbally. I can say, use the word I'm excited versus I'm kind of happy. Right. Very. You can easily hear that those are two very ver different verbal strategies. Vocally, ooh, that's the hard one. And that's because one, they have actually proven that we do not 
hear how well, the way we hear ourselves is different the way than you hear me. So trying to self-diagnose is really hard vocally. That's why we, we cringe when we listen to recordings of ourselves or cringe when we listen to voicemails. It's very, very hard to self-diagnose because the way that we hear ourselves is actually through the bone. So we, we're hearing a lot more resonance um, through the bone of our ear as opposed to just hearing something projected at us. So self-diagnosis is really hard. And then second, it's really hard to change our vocal power. Everyone has a natural vocal range based on the shape of our neck, the shape of our vocal cords. And so I have worked really hard. So you hear me speaking now and um, there are usually 12 notes in someone's vocal range. I am working exceptionally hard to keep my voice in the lowest end of my natural range. When I get nervous or excited or when I'm talking to my daughter or my husband, I talk a little bit more like this and I'm like, hey, baby, how are you? Oh, it's so good to see you. But if I were to do my entire podcast like this, it would drive you crazy. Both of those are natural for me, but I know that if I go into the bottom two notes of my range, which is right here, that's called my maximum resonance point. It's where I have the most resonance in my voice. I have more volume. I have less vocal fry. The moment I go a little higher in my vocal range, it still feels very natural, but I'm much more likely to have squeakiness. I'm much more likely to have vocal fry, which drives you nuts. That has taken me years to even understand that most basic premise. That's just resonance point. That doesn't include inflection. That doesn't include volume. That doesn't include breath. That doesn't include pausing. That doesn't include a lot of other things about vocal power. And so vocal power in, in our, our course people school, we spend, you know, two hours on it working on vocal power because it's so impactful, but it's one of the harder things to change. Possible, but harder. Vanessa, you are just such a treasure trove, and I want to bring up your book that I'm obsessed with. I've gifted to a lot of people just entering the job force, and that book's Captivate, but you just mentioned it, People School. Your website is incredible resource. You have a lot of free tools on there. I know you have a lot of interesting things going on there as well that people can sign up for. You want, you want to dive a little deeper into that. What's People School and then what people can find there? Yeah, sure. So Captivate is a great way to start. It's um, for high achieving professionals. So uh, managers, people who are have a lot of feel like they have a lot of potential and want to activate their people skills more. Um, people school is the next level. So this is a online training. It's video. We also do live office hours. Um, it's sort of my pride and joy. It's what I wish I had had going through school. Um, it also enables me to teach body language a lot better. It also allows me to teach vocal power. It's very hard to teach vocal power and body language in a book. So I'm able to expand a lot on the concepts and captivate and dive into nonverbal video vocal power. Uh, we have different classes going through all the time. Uh, we have thousands of students who are going through people school right now. Um, it's also a way for me to check in with you. So when you go into people school, you tell me your goal, then I'm able to encourage you and help you achieve it. Some of our coaches. So those are the big ones. And of course, if you just want to test drive some things, we have so many free resources. We have thousands of articles and videos on YouTube that are all for free for your benefit. So whatever works for you, I'm ready to give it. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have all that linked up, scienceofpeople.com and in some of my favorite YouTube videos. Final question for you, Vanessa, though. If the microphone was, was turned around here and you could sit down and spend an evening with anyone, dead or alive, not a family member, who would you love to sit down with and interview? For sure, for sure, I'd want to interview Lucille Ball. Um, Lucille Ball was a maverick of her day. Most people don't realize uh, she was actually quite serious and she was a business owner. She created 
totally changed the way television was shot. So she was the first person with Desi Arnaz to use uh, multiple cameras on a TV sitcom. No one had ever done that before. Um, she had a major business. She was able to also help millions of people through her uh, laughter. And so I'd love to talk to her about um, the business side of how she grew her business, how she was able to make people laugh, how she was able to create hundreds of episodes that people still watch all these years later. Um, and I just think she was an amazing woman. So that's that's who I would have I would pick. I love that answer. That's a first time one. Vanessa, I, I have to be honest, you are one of those people for me, though, you, you've inspired you, you've helped me change, you've helped me learn and grow so much. So I cannot thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm so, thank you so much for giving Captivate away to friends. I found that word of mouth is the single best way to get behavior change. So thank you for that. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.